as early as the first century, the fish became a symbol for the Christian faith. You see, the Greek word for fish is ichthus, and those Greek letters correspond to this acrostic, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Now, you, you may remember in the early days of our faith, Christianity was severely persecuted. It was seen as a sect within Judaism and was most severely opposed by unbelieving Jews to begin with. For example, wherever Paul went on his missionary journeys sharing the gospel in the book of Acts, he was first and most violently opposed by those unbelieving Jews. But then, because Christianity of Christianity's claimed that only the God of the Bible was the true God, there were not multiple gods. Because Christianity did deny the polytheism of the Roman Empire to include Caesar, who was not divine, it was declared an illegal religion and relentlessly persecuted by Roman authorities for the first 200 years of its existence. Of course, that all began with Jesus, remember, who was crucified by Roman authorities at the instigation of Jewish leadership. It wasn't until after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 311 A.D. that Emperor Constantine declared Christianity a legal religion in 312, the next year, in the Edict of Milan. Constantine himself made a spurious claim to the Christian faith. But again, that aside, during those first 200 years, Christians were vigorously opposed and persecuted, meaning it actually costs something to be a Christian. Not like today. It's okay. You can do that if you want. No. It costs something. So they met in secret. And the ichthus, that fish, would be painted on a door or on a house or even on a tomb or in the catacombs to signal where such a secret meeting was to take place. Further, when you met someone new, perhaps on a roadway, as a Christian, you didn't know if he or she was a Christian, and to declare your faith overtly could prove costly. Legend has it that while conversing, you may surreptitiously just kind of take your foot and draw a half circle in the sand like you were doodling with your foot. If the person to whom you were speaking was a Christian, they too would draw the other half circle completing the ichthus, the fish. And you knew then that you were in safe family company kind of like a secret handshake, I guess. The fish then became an appropriate symbol for our faith. It became popular again in the 60s, but even today you see it in tattoos, on T-shirts and jewelry, on the backs of cars, all public ways, I suppose, to declare your faith, your allegiance to Jesus. It's our, our symbol. And so... It became as no surprise then when a few years ago, certain unbelievers, specifically followers of Darwinism, opposing 
creationism would take our symbol and profane it. You've seen it. It is a fish with legs sprouting, with Darwin in the center instead of the familiar ichthus or the name Jesus. By this symbol, they are denying our belief in creation, perhaps even the God of creation. They conveniently want to forget or dismiss God's existence and His interaction with creation as described in the first couple of chapters in Genesis. I have to tell you, just to be honest, it always irritated me. The first few times I saw that symbol, I thought, can't you guys get your own symbol? Can't you be creative? Oh, that's right, you don't believe in creation. Why attack us? But of course, the answer is obvious. To believe in a God of creation is to make yourself accountable to Him, right? So to deny His existence or even His interaction with creation is to free yourself to live however you want. That's what they're declaring. I was reading an article this week on the origins of the ichthus, and the author suggested when we see such a profaned symbol, it ought to cause us to pray for the person. Well, that was convicting. This is all analogous to what was happening, I believe, when Peter wrote his second canonical letter. It will make sense as we go along. You may remember he wrote his first letter to tell Christians how to respond to attacks from outside the church, from those who opposed or even persecuted the Christian faith. And it isn't irritation, Scott. You're supposed to live such good lives before unbelievers that then when they, even though they slander you and your faith, they'll see your good works and glorify God on the day of His visitation. But he wrote a second letter. Uh, when those attacks against the faith came from within the church, from these false teachers, and the tone has changed a bit. He's not quite as nice. Been in a study of Second Peter for some time now. We arrive today at chapter, at chapter 3. Let's read our text today, Second Peter 3, verses 1 to 7, say this. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers, your translation may have it, scoffers will come with their mocking. That's what they do. Scoffers scoff, mockers mock, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So that's what they were saying. Peter's response, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. They conveniently forget that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. 
But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You can stick your head in the sand all you want. He's saying, judgment is coming. We know well by now the false teachers were saying Jesus is not coming back, and since He's not coming back, there will be no judgment, and since there will be no judgment, we can live however we want, following, notice, following after our own sexual sinful lusts, or our sexual sinful desires. So Peter had some rather strong things to say um, of these false teachers in chapter 2. We outlined that chapter like this, the impact of false teachers, the certain judgment of false teachers, and then the character of false teachers. Please notice it was all about the false teachers. These were three very difficult sermons of strong condemnation. Now, today, while we're not quite done with these false teachers, Peter turns his attention back to us, his readers. You see, chapter 2 was filled with a lot of they and them and their, these false teachers having secretly, secretly introduced their destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They follow their sensuality because of them the way of the truth is maligned. They exploit you with their greed. If God did not spare angelic majesties who sin, if He didn't spare an ancient evil world, if He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, He will not spare them either. I want you to notice something. These people were denying the second coming of Christ, and Peter says, therefore, they will be judged. It's kind of interesting. Does it matter whether or not you believe Jesus is coming back? Seems to. They're being kept under punishment until the day of sure and coming judgment. He went on to describe them with some strong words, daring, self-willed, unreasoning animals of instinct, reveling in the daytime, eyes full of adultery, never ceasing from sin, unstable, trained in greed. They're cursed children. They are springs without water, misdriven by the storm. I mean, this is, these, these are harsh words. They, they speak arrogant words of vanity, enticing others with fleshly desires trying to get you to participate in their sin. They promise freedom, but themselves are slaves of corruption. He finishes with, they're like dogs who return to their vomit, pigs who return to their mire. I suggested that you can, you can wash a dog, but it's still a dog. You can put a bow on a pig, but it's still a pig. That's what these were. And that's where we left it three weeks ago. That was fun. But, but fortunately, Peter does not end there. He turns his attention back to us as readers and reminds us of why he's writing. Chapter 3 is actually a great chapter, an encouraging chapter. We're going to follow this outline of the chapter, the false teachers and their error. We'll talk about today. Mark it down. We just sang it. The Lord is coming back. Haste the day. And Peter explains the apparent delay. Been a couple thousand years. Does that bother you? Don't let it bother you. 
We'll look at that next week. And therefore, since he is coming back, live rightly until he returns. So with that outline, you can see how he refocuses, retain, returns his attention to us. But today, we still have to deal specifically with the false teaching. I've been saying all along that they were denying the return of Christ. He says it clearly today. Along, He gives their rationale which he will then refute. So our outline this morning goes like this. The reason for writing, he told us in chapter 1, he reminds us, the teaching of the false teachers and the refutation of their false teaching. Starting with his redirect, if you will, in verses 1 and 2, he's focusing on us now. He's focusing on you now. Are you listening? He calls us beloved. That ought to melt you just a little bit. See, the word means one's loved. But by whom? Well, well, certainly Peter. I mean, he was a leader. Some would say the leader in the Christian church. And he loved those in the church because, listen, that's what Christians do. We'll find that clearly spelled out for us in 1 John, Lord willing, our next book. One of the proofs, I've said this over and over, and I will keep reminding you till I die... That's what Peter does, so I'm going to do it too. One of the proofs of being genuine followers of Jesus is that we love other genuine followers of Jesus. That means that we would complete the fish drawn in the sand. It means we are encouraged to see a fish or a, on the back of a car or a, no matter how they're driving, or that would be for me, or a cross on another person, a symbol of allegiance to Christ. Yes, I know that people wear crosses without a thought of its real meaning, but giving the benefit of the doubt when we see and then know that someone is a believer, they become to us a deeply loved one. If you don't hear anything else, hear that today. You are deeply loved. We love brothers and sisters in Christ. But, that, but not only are they loved by Peter and us, they are especially loved by God. Hear that too. God loves you, especially. I say that without apology. Peter actually used this word back in chapter 1 when he quoted the Father speaking of Jesus, this is my beloved Son. And now he calls you the same thing. There are many verses in the Bible which speaks of God's special love for his children. He said, but I thought God loved the world. Yeah, he does, but he's got a special love for you. Such that we can be called beloved sons and daughters of the living God. Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself. In love, he predestined you. Peter tells us this is his second letter he was writing to these people. Obvious assumption is that he was writing to the same group of people to which he had written uh, 1 Peter. That's likely. I even think it's probable. But it's also possible, and I bring this up to make an important point, it's possible that he had written another letter. We don't know that he was writing to the same people that he wrote 1 Peter. Another, all, he, all we know about these people is that they, were, they had received a faith the same as, as ours, it's possible that he had written them another letter that was not inspired and therefore is not in our Bibles. <gasps> Don't let that bother you. Paul himself, uh, for example, wrote four letters that we know of to the church of Corinth. How many l letters do you have in your Bible to the church at Corinth? 
Say it with me, two. You see, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. But there were other letters that Paul wrote that didn't make it into our Bible because it wasn't inspired. If it had been inspired by God, it would have been in our Bibles. You understand that these Christian leaders wrote lots of letters. We have the ones that God wanted us to have, you can rest assured. So we don't know this group of people. We don't know if this second letter is referring to the first. In the end, it doesn't really matter. He goes back to what he told them in chapter 1. I'm writing to stir. That means to provoke up your sincere or your wholesome minds by way of reminder. They had been made sincere. They had been made wholesome minds. Listen, your brains were fallen. Your, your intellect was fallen. You may have been able to think, but not rightly. You have now been given a new heart, a new mind by which you can think rightly. That's what the word means, purely and with goodness, by the work of the Spirit of God through the gospel in your lives. Very interesting. He's reminding us of these things over and over that we've known since the beginning. Since the beginning. These are principal truths of the Christian faith. As we saw in chapter 1, there is not a time that we need, uh, there is not a time we do not need to be reminded of the principal truths of the gospel. What are those principal truths? I'm going to suggest these. They include the divine life. You see, if Jesus was not Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, then His death would have meant nothing. This is why this was an important symbol to the, to the Christian faith. His divine, perfect life as the Son of God, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension back to the Father, and His soon return... You see, these people didn't believe that, and Peter calls them out. He calls them pigs and dogs. See, we find in this letter, if we are not reminded, we may soon forget or be sucked in by false teachers. It is, by the way, why we regularly take communion or the Lord's Supper to be reminded of the work of Christ on our behalf. And we will note today that we take, partake together until He comes, because He's coming back. Peter reminds us that what he is teaching was taught by the holy prophets, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, likely referring to the Old Testament prophets who spoke of the coming day of the Lord. This was a central theme in the, in the prophets from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. He, he is, his coming is for the salvation of His own and also for the judgment of of the ungodly ones. You can stick your head in the sand. I don't believe it. It's not going to change it. I should remember also the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles we now have contained in the New Testament, which means the Old and New Testaments are a consistent, connected work. They have one storyline, that is the story of God and humanity, our fall into sin, even though created in His image, our fall into sin and God's work throughout time to redeem us to Himself, accomplished through the work of His Son, our Lord and Savior. And having redeemed us, He will come back to receive us to Himself, which, by the way, is one little hint as to why the delay in His coming, so that more will believe. 
It's an interesting phrase, though, that he uses, the commandment of the Lord and Savior. We don't normally refer to the prophetic word concerning the return of Christ and the coming judgment as the commandment of the Lord. And he uses it in the singular. So he has something specific in mind, but what is it? What does Peter mean? Simply this, because the false teachers were denying the return of Christ, they were living sinful, licentious, sexually immoral, impure, dissolute lives. Peter says, we don't We don't deny His return. We don't deny His coming in judgment. So we, as His genuine followers, pursue holy lives. That's the commandment, generally speaking, of what He's talking about. Because we believe Jesus is coming back, we live like it, pursuing those virtues that He talked about in chapter 1. Remember those, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and self-sacrificing love cannot call yourself a believer if you are not pursuing righteousness. All the things the false teachers eschewed, since they didn't believe that Jesus was coming, they wouldn't therefore not have to give an account. We understand, however, that as followers of Jesus, He's coming back, and we live like we believe it, and Lord haste the day. Can you say that today? Would you want him to come back today? We pursue holiness. We pursue godliness, the command, the commandment of our Lord. He who has this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure, 1 John 3 says, because when he returns, we shall see him as he is and we will be like him. That's the goal. Brings us to our second point very quickly, the teaching of the false teachers, verses 3 and 4. I've told us many times, knowing this was the problem that Peter was actually addressing, but he gets to the problem quite clearly today, actually quotes the false teachers. He says in verse 3, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers, scoffers are going to come in the New Testament. We, we find that the last days extend from the ascent, this is very interesting, from the ascension of Christ. Um, until the return of Christ. So every once in a while you hear people say, are we living in the last days? Peter was living in the last days. Peter's original readers were living in the last days, as are we. It does mean we're a day or two closer. Next thing to happen on the prophetic calendar, listen very carefully to me. The next thing to happen on the prophetic calendar are the events surrounding the return of Christ. What are those events? You can argue about it all you want. We'll figure it out when we get to the book of Revelation. Not. But the next event on the prophetic calendar are the events surrounding the return of Christ and Lord haste the day. Do we live like we know that we are living in the last days? Peter's point is this. The appearance of false teachers has been prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. You can find it all over the place. By Jesus himself and his apostles. Should not come as a surprise to us. We remember in Matthew 24, Jesus said, In the last days, false Christ will arise to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Paul told the Ephesian elders, after he left, there would come wolves in sheep's clothing. My my goodness, look 
at Christian TV today. Listen to Christian radio today. Look at YouTube today. Look at social media. They are all over the place. This shouldn't be a surprise. False teachers who seek to devour the sheep. This has been anticipated and should not surprise us. What is interesting is that these false teachers have been around since the earliest days of the church. They have always been around and will be so until Jesus comes back. It's not like the church is, is um, uh, and everyone in the church, uh, professing church, will one day figure it out and get everything right. Nope, not going to happen. There will always be false teachers and false teaching for the purpose. Notice Peter says, he gives us their purpose. I've been telling you this. I'm going to say it again, to follow after their own lusts. False teaching, especially these false teachers, have as the motivation, write it down, for their motivation, for their error, the pursuit of ungodly living, pursuing sinful sexual desires. You show me someone, I've told you before, I'll say it again, you show me someone who denies the reality of Jesus and his gospel, and I'll show you someone who wants to pursue a sinful lifestyle. Goes hand in hand. What better way than to deny the coming of Jesus and any future judgment? Doing so allows you to live however you want. These false teachers came with their mocking, their derisive sarcastic ridicule. That's what mockers do. They make fun by mocking, displaying both arrogance and disdain. We should not be surprised when those who oppose the tenets of the Christian faith, um, both inside and out of the church, do so with ridicule. You ever been ridiculed? Students, you ever been ridiculed for your faith? These particularly mocked by deriding the orthodox teaching of both Old and New Testaments, he says. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, both, their, their, their testimony is consistent. Jesus is coming back and judgment is coming. They asked derisively, where is the promise of his coming? This where is is a common way to mock. They mocked Jeremiah that way. Where is the fulfillment of this prophecy you've been giving to us, Jeremiah? Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Come on, Jeremiah. If this promise of His coming was mocked 2,000 years ago, how much more today? Now, we're going to address, I cannot wait till next Sunday, we're going to address this apparent delay of His return next week, these thousands of years, as if those thousands of years really matter. But since it has been two millenniums, many will mock and scorn our faith even more so today than they did then. Come on! Really? It's an, it's, it's an old fairy tale as evidenced by the fact that your Jesus has not come back. You're still looking longingly to the sky? You're still holding on to that outdated hope? Yep. Because it is the believer's hope. Paul said that we are looking for the blessed hope, the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Has it happened yet? No. Is it going to? You bet. Doesn't mean we should be n- naming dates, by the way. All that does is to diminish the credibility of the Christian faith. But he's coming back. Notice the rationale of false teachers. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The fathers is a way of referring to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons. Nothing has changed, they say. Everything remains the same. And the implication is it's going to continue to remain the same since Jesus is not coming back. I mean, come on, where is he? Everything's just the same. 
bringing us to our last point very quickly, Peter's refutation of their mocking in verses 5 to 7. If you've been wondering, if you've been mocked, you've been ridiculed, you've been scoffed, you've been wondering, here's the answer. He says, when they maintain this, that is that everything continues as it has since the days of creation, it first escapes their notice that God did intervene in human history. How do we know that? Well, He created you. That's what He says. He spoke when there was nothing, and all that exists came into being by His command. Notice the presence of, uh, um, uh, the, uh, of water in the Genesis account. When the earth was first created, it was formless and void. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Then he separated the waters below on the earth from the waters above, and the separation was called sky. Then the, God said, let the waters below be gathered together, let the dry land appear, and it was so. Read through it. I think it's nine times that we read in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, and it was so. He doesn't intervene? Are you kidding me? His whole point is he created everything that we see. How can you stick your head in the sand? He must have Psalm 33 in mind. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. That should be the response. That's supposed to be the result of, of, of science. It's supposed to make us bow in wonder that the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. The importance in all, that, in all of that is that God was intimately involved in the creation of the earth. Even by their statement, everything continues as it has since the days of what? Creation. The false teachers were acknowledging God's activity in the past. Why would they deny it in the future? Of course, we're much smarter today and deny even that. Hence the Darwin fish. All came about not by divine fiat, but by random process called the Big Bang and evolution. I do believe in the Big Bang because I believe there was a big noise when God said, let there be, and there was. And even much of the scientific community today acknowledges there is too much order in creation for it to be a matter of random chance. More and more are accepting so-called intelligent design. Of course, we understand the intelligent designer is a God called Jesus. Notice verse 6, through which, that is, through these, I think the ESV has it, by His Word and by water, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. We conveniently suppress that. We conveniently forget that. Peter is referring uh, to the flood during the days of Noah. Uh, of Noah. Uh, found in Genesis 6 to 9, we find that the earth had become wicked and that the thoughts and inclination of human hearts were evil only evil all of the time. God said, that's enough. And he stepped in. He intervened and judged the world. He destroyed it through a worldwide flood. Lots of evidence for that today. But when people maintain that God does not intervene, that everything continues just the same since the beginning, they conveniently forget it escapes their notice that God did in fact intervene in this thing called the flood. Never happened, right? Haven't you heard? Never happened. Really. When they maintain this, they do so to live their profligate lifestyles. The proof of creation and the proof of the flood is proof that God will intervene again. 
But since he promised not to destroy the earth by water again, hence the rainbow is a sign of the Noahic covenant. In verse 7, by his word, the same powerful word that judged the world by destruction before, by his word, the present heavens and earth, the present heavens and earth, meaning the post-flood earth, are currently being reserved. Interesting word. It's the fourth time he's used it in this book. When he talked about the, 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 those fallen angels, they're being reserved for judgment. He talked about the ungodly being reserved for judgment. He says that the, in chapter 2 that these false teachers are being reserved for judgment, and now he tells us the entire earth is being reserved for fire. That's called global warming, by the way. Colossians 1 tells us that by His Word, the Son of God, all things hold together. He holds the universe together by the Word of His power. Hebrews 1. Now we read that He's holding it together. He's reserving it for the judgment of fire. This time He will judge and destroy by fire in the day of judgment of God, ungodly people. Stick your head in the sand all you want. Judge, Jesus is coming back and judgment is coming. Peter's point is clear. We're done. While these false teachers denied the return of Christ and a future judgment, Christ is coming back. The earth will be judged and ungodly people will be destroyed. God's intervention in the past through creation and the flood, not to mention His judgment of the fallen angels and Sodom and Gomorrah, Chapter 2, our proof that He will judge in the future. We're supposed to look at what He's done and go, He's going to do it again. Jesus is coming back, and we are to live like we believe it. I finish with this final thought. The ichthus became a symbol in the early church. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. But... At the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, which we'll turn to in just a moment, and the idea is found at the end of the book of Revelation, is another important symbol, this one in a word, that we've heard that we don't use much anymore. It's the word Maranatha, and it means, our Lord, come. You see, the ichthus was a symbol that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came as Savior and Maranatha becomes, and we can't wait for Him to come again. When is the last time that thought crossed your mind? That Jesus could come back. The next thing on the prophetic calendar means that He could come now. Does that fact change the way that you live? Or do we conveniently suppress it so we can live how we want? My brothers and sisters, we must not, we cannot do that. I'm not suggesting we resurrect, resurrect that lost term, term, but perhaps we should. Maranatha, our Lord. Lord.